Before we begin, if you are interested in learning more about the security threats facing Ireland and the modern world, do subscribe to The Dark State on Patreon or Apple Podcasts, where you can get access to lots more bonus episodes, which will give you the inside perspective on everything from Russian spies to dissident Republicans. But whether you choose to subscribe or not, I do hope you enjoy this show. Has the British government and the Northern Ireland executive failed in their attempts to tackle paramilitarism in Northern Ireland? I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Edwards of the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, the co-author of a new report which examines this issue. This is The Dark State and I am John Mooney. Welcome back to the show. Before we begin, I'd just like to let everyone know I'll be sharing a copy of this report on the show's Patreon page. Aaron, you have argued in this report that the UK government and the Northern Ireland executive have failed in their efforts to tackle paramilitarism adequately, and this now requires a fundamental rethink. Can you set out your position on this very interesting paper? Thanks, John. It's great to be back with you. Um, I should say at the outset that this was a co-authored report and uh, I was joined in in writing the uh, evidence submission to the parliamentary inquiry into ongoing paramilitary activity by two uh, external colleagues in in Belfast, uh, Dr. Sean Brennan and Dr. Stephen Bloomer. So the the findings in this short report uh, reflect uh, an agreed position um, but um, there are subtleties in terms of our individual positions, which I can go on to elaborate upon. Um, but looking at the issue of ongoing paramilitary activity in Northern Ireland is uh, vital, I think, for uh, building a sustainable and more peaceful future in Northern Ireland. And uh, it's very welcome to see that the Northern Ireland Select Affairs Committee is dealing with this very uh, thorny issue. Um, just to just to say that um, our view is that uh, clearly the Northern Ireland Executive, in its tackling paramilitarism program, sets itself a bold strategic goal, which is to break the cycle of paramilitary activity and organised crime in Northern Ireland. And we ask the question: Has that been done? Uh, and uh, how successful has that been? Well, according to the Independent Reporting Commission, the independent body appointed by the British and Irish governments to look into this uh, ongoing, very thorny issue, um, it has not uh, been done. Some things have been done successfully, other things have been have not been done successfully. And in fact, the IRC identifies paramilitary activity in Northern Ireland to quote uh, them as a clear and present danger. It really hasn't stopped and it never really did. It just morphed into something else. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think uh, when I was with you uh, almost a year ago, I said that um, they had mutated, that these groups had had begun um, in some ways uh, as politically orientated and politically motivated. Um, But since the calling a ceasefire in the 1990s, uh, they had... Uh, developed into something else that they had um, f- they had flirted with uh, criminality that they had 
um, essentially changed or transformed. And in the past 25 years, they have certainly become much more complex organizations. Uh, and that, in our view, in the report, we would suggest requires a more complex set of solutions. So why did this happen? And why did the political institutions fail in their objective to end paramilitarism? Because this has been like a plague in Northern Ireland for a very long time. Is this due to economics? I noted in the report that you mentioned that it was 300,000 people out of a population of 1.82 million who are living in Northern Ireland who live in absolute poverty. Yes, so I mean there are structural deficiencies and inequalities in Northern Ireland and in the more deprived areas. We specifically focus on loyalist paramilitary activity, so we don't deal with um, you know so-called dissident Republicans or indeed um, those and you know belonging to mainstream Republican groups. What we're really dealing with here um, are the UVF and UDA, and unfortunately they're part of the furniture. And so politically they've become part of the furniture since they called a halt to their. Uh, campaigns in the 1990s since they uh, apparently decommissioned in 2009. Uh, They have remained a persistent challenge for law enforcement agencies. So I think that actually if you break that down, um, yes, they are preying on the vulnerable, on the weak. There's a very um, robust, uh, I I should say that that the, um, the tackling paramilitarism program is effective in certain ways. They have tried to, in the, in the words that are used um, to describe this uh, ending of paramilitary control, ending the harm, that they have tried to turn off the tap of recruitment, that they've worked through various state agencies. But unfortunately, I think it's a political architecture and the um, the you know the deeply divided society that Northern Ireland is and the, the constitutional engineering, I mean, in terms of the power-sharing institutions, in terms of bringing in the extremes uh, 20 years ago, um, in terms of um, particularly Sinn Féin, but also um, to try and ensure that loyalist paramilitaries were represented at the table. Now, they were never elected um, in great numbers. There were very few uh, political representatives of loyalist groups that were elected. Um, But nevertheless, it was an inclusive way of ensuring they came around the table. So what I mean by that is um, politically there were efforts made to try and um, take, you, you, you know, the temperature of paramilitary um, uh, thinking and paramilitary um, uh, paramilitary organisation uh, and um, and that came in different ways. So in, in primarily in what we kind of critique here is a community and voluntary sector that has become in Uh, in one respect, colonized by these paramilitary-linked groups. And so they have become ever more part of the furniture. And we give a a, a term uh, to describe that. We call it paramilitary peacekeeping. Uh, And that comes in from a comparative look right across the world at how extremist and terrorist groups have been managed out of existence or, uh, in this case, um, unsuccessfully. So so really what we're trying to do in the report is to, to... to give a, a snapshot, really, of the problems that still exist, but more importantly, to give uh, some kind of solutions-based um, 
analysis. So what we're really looking at is how we might move on from this. But unfortunately, the system itself um, has um, ennobled some of these groups and those linked to them uh, in a way that is disadvantaging some of those deprived areas and, and not allowing them to thrive. And what we're really interested in is how communities can thrive amidst the, you know, the looming threat of paramilitary groups in their midst. Aaron, one of the most fascinating aspects of this report was your suggestion that part of the issue really is linked to the payment of what you describe as a stipend to paramilitaries and that this is something that the British government or British governments have done historically. Can you explain this? So I think that if we look at this as, uh, you know, in terms of European history and colonialism, so not just Britain, but also right across Europe, um, in the scramble for different parts of the world, European states that were not huge in terms of personnel and numbers of managing um, some of those populations, some of those continents that they scramble to to um, take over in terms of imperialism. So historically, they had to rely on um, you know local buy-in. So so really, what we're what we're critiquing in the report is the the idea of local buy-in. And I don't think actually on reflection that it's entirely a British response. And Mm. and I've written about this in different colonial contexts, Uh, uh, you know, in in South Yemen, um, in uh, Cyprus, uh, and some other, uh, you know, former British colonies where the political and security apparatus worked in conjunction with uh, those who... um, they 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 ennobled those who who they gave a local face to um, the the rule that was coming essentially from London. But but I think and and what we're saying here is it, it's actually today um, we're seeing a lot of European money um, and donors from outside Europe and the United States and so on actually channel money in the direction of these groups for very um, re, you know sensible reasons. So um, if these groups uh, do a a funding application, then one of the provisos one would imagine is that the groups will manage themselves out of existence. But the very fact that today we're seeing a lot more people involved in loyalist paramilitary groups than 25 years ago, I think we have to say that something is amiss here, that perhaps they haven't been held to account um, and uh, now, in some respects, the security uh, apparatus has responded. Law enforcement has responded. We have the paramilitary crime task force. It's cracking down and has been cracking down on on illegal activity by these groups. But the fact is, they're still in existence, and that's where we uh, identify as being a you know a key strategic um, problem. Uh, and it requires a radical rethink. So, so rather than pouring money through donors uh, and through, you know, local, um, uh, you know, sort of community-based agreements, um, we would suggest uh, taking steps to um, basically dethrone these groups from from the um, entitled status that they have um, coveted for the past twenty years. Uh, and uh, and we do this, by the way, coming at this from a very practical point of view. All three of the authors of this report have been involved in uh, the, um, the the roll up your sleeves 
very practical peace building and conflict transformation work. But unfortunately, um, that work has not always been successful. So we're looking at this from the point of view of um, what, ha- what, what we think has worked and what we think has not worked. So we're, we're not offering a, a, you know, a, a, a critique that doesn't offer a solution. We're trying to pick out some of the best practice uh, in, the, in the report. And this really is an issue that very few people want to admit exists because there's there's almost a status quo now in Northern Ireland about these issues that it's just accepted. Do, do you agree with that? Or yes, I mean I've been writing about this for twenty years now. I've I've um, you know I've been uh, quite uh, critical of what I saw as some of the mistakes were being made. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, uh, my work has been published in, in newspapers. So people know my position. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, anyone has not, you know, that, that we haven't had critical voices on this. Um, but I think that um, what, what we see now from the recent IRC report published in December is a very good audit of where we are. And uh, if we really drill down on on these issues, for example, uh, looking at the PSNI's crime statistics related to the security situation, um, you you can see for the first time in over uh, a decade that uh, loyalist, uh, the number of casualties as a result of uh, paramilitary style shootings has gone up beyond uh, Republican responsibility. So, so, so really, you know, hard questions really must be asked in relation to statistics like that. And again, in terms of casualties for paramilitary style assaults, loyalists historically over the past decade have been responsible for the vast majority of those. Uh, and often we do see uh, that not represented in the media uh, coverage. And so there's cores of control there, which the IRC has has identified as being a major uh, problem, a major factor, an impediment to realizing that very sensible goal of breaking the cycle of paramilitary activity and organized crime. So I think it's, it's a strategic problem rather than a tactical one. And uh, strategically, you have to have buy-in from uh, local politicians, and of course they've been distracted with other things, uh, and uh, power sharing has been interrupted again, uh, and uh, and so it's very difficult, I think, for a political census consensus, sorry, around the issue of ongoing paramilitary activity to be built up for the political will to be there. Um, you know, if you even if you've got uh, tactical level. Uh, results happening in terms of, uh, you know, policing successes against these groups. Uh, I think that what you need is a whole of society approach, uh, and that's something that we've we've tried to uh, advance in our recommendations in the report about some practical steps that could be taken to realise that. Your report makes reference to the 2016 Fresh Start report, which discusses the normalisation of paramilitary peacekeeping on the basis that loyalists and Republican paramilitary groups who were observing the ceasefire since 1994 are no longer engaged in retaliatory cycles of sectarian attack, but nevertheless continue to engage in violent activity. Now, you and I will be very familiar with all of this. Well, this is a concept that was um, developed by one of my co-authors, Dr. Sean Brennan, who has been a pioneering voice in 
certainly within academia and in uh, you know, community involuntary sectors and so on, where he's been uh, talking about paramilitary peacekeeping. It's essentially a, a way of managing internal dissent within communities. Now, it's a byproduct of some of the uh, structural factors I've mentioned, but essentially it's about ennobling uh, and giving status to individuals who are seen as quote-unquote, community representatives, the people that you go to in order to solve problems. Now, there are very good reasons uh, why um, consensus-based policing uh, should talk to communities and community representatives. But in Northern Ireland, it takes on a very different twist. And so it's difficult uh, because it's a political issue uh, in, in some communities uh, there are those who um, put themselves forward as representatives um, who deal with things like flags, uh, emblems, uh, Orange Order arches, um, but yet they aren't representatives of, say, the Orange Order. They aren't representatives of some kind of flag com uh, commission. We don't have anything like that, but we do have these unofficial people acting in a kind of unofficial capacity, or as I would say, a shadow state function. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they, uh, they, these individuals are um, linked to uh, you know, paramilitary groups. If we're talking about marginalized areas, nothing escapes the attention of local paramilitary commanders. It's, um, it's just a fact of life. In areas, uh, I've seen it firsthand. Um, I, you know, I come from one of those areas. I, I return to uh, to to interact with the community, to visit community, people in the community I know, and I still see it. And it's it's entered into the discourse of everyday life. So what I mean by that, it sounds quite uh, woolly, but everybody talks about it. The dogs in the street know who these people are. Uh, in fact, uh, even you know local statutory agencies work with them in order to problem solve. So they're working through these kind of midwives, if you like, uh, to uh, you know to try and uh, deal with quite uh, thorny issues. And by doing that, I think that you know you confer status upon people, uh, and that gives them a certain profile. And for ordinary people who have no truck with paramilitaries, that's what they see. They see, they hear, they feel, and, and they sense it, and they know who's in charge. And it isn't the um, legitimate and lawful authorities of the state. It's these malign groups. And so it's a very complex issue uh, for, for policing to tackle alone. And in the report, we talk about developmental, uh, a shift to, towards developmental um, you, you know, resources, um, being pumped into communities, but not through paramilitary gatekeepers. So these paramilitary peacekeepers, I would call them paramilitary gatekeepers, um, but essentially they are there um, with a very malign profile within some hard-to-reach communities. And just to explain, this, these people are not dissident paramilitaries or anyone like that. These are people that support the peace process, but have developed and created roles for themselves 
as paramilitaries in civic society. It's a very complex issue. I've seen it in action myself. I remember uh, watching people that were involved in the provisional IRA liaison with police officers who seemed to be almost answering to them at one stage uh, during uh, issues around uh, peace walls and uh, in Northern Ireland uh, during contentions periods. So this is, it's almost imperceptible to people unless you really know what to look for. That's right. I mean, it's it's subtle. Uh, it's not always in your face. We have seen some media reports of uh, these groups moving to intimidate, to threaten, to exile individuals. There's all sorts of evidence online. You can even see footage of it. Um, and, uh, you know, places like East Belfast and, uh, and East Antrim and so on. And so you can see it very visibly there, but most of the time it's, as I say, it's in the shadow state format. It's very difficult to smash a system like that that's been built up and not just over 40 years. I mean, this is a misperception that the troubles kind of, the troubles certainly accelerated this, but the seed was planted generations ago. Uh, it's bound up in the fabric of the state of Northern Ireland. Paramilitary groups have been around for generations. And that kind of pike in the thatch mentality uh, it, it exists. And Sometimes it's quiet, sometimes it's subterranean, sometimes it's, uh, you know, there's a kind of intersection of these groups with ordinary criminal gangs, the ODC um, sort of variety who aren't political, um, but it gives it much more of an injection of kind of, you know, testosterone as well as kind of, uh, you, you know, this kind of muscular um, feel to it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, in deprived areas where life chances, life opportunities just aren't what they should be, uh, these groups thrive. And that's what makes it difficult, as I say, to dislodge them. And, um, they're all, you know, and I've described them before as parasites, um, feeding of the host. They have a symbiotic relationship with the state and you see it in different parts of the world and it works its way out, uh, out in different ways. So in Italy and the United States, gangs are probably the best way to describe what we've got in Northern Ireland now, a series of gangs. Some are bigger than others. Some are in more control than others. Uh, some are armed. Uh, others are not. Um, but nevertheless, as I've said, there are malign presence, which makes it all the more difficult in trying to deal with them. I sometimes liken them to Italian organized crime gangs. They're not solely about crime or violence or anything. They're almost a cultural phenomenon. They're silent. Everyone knows who is who, although it's it's not formally recognized. It's informally recognized. And the power that these people wield is very much recognised and respected amongst their communities. They're problem solvers. They're different things to different men. But it explains their durability and this ability to reinvent themselves and resist every effort to disband them. Could I ask you, why does the British government continue to pour finances into institutions that may be, I suppose, contributing to the continuation of these groups? Well, I, I don't think it's as simple as as the state doing it. As, as I've said, it's international donors, and uh, it's a it's this commitment to a kind of golden era of the peace process. It certainly did work in driving down violence and driving down. So, you know, I, I, I'm often uh, sometimes 
perceived as someone who, who might be a Cassandra-like figure. I'm not saying that everything's terrible um, about Northern Ireland. You know, um, what I'm saying is that it's affecting acutely. Uh, at, you know, some of those more deprived areas. I'm trying to explain why that is, but I think that it's not. It's not the responsibility of the state necessarily. The state's done all it can to drive these groups. Um, out of business. Um, I think it's the community. We have to see this as a whole of society problem. Um, we have to see this as a global problem, actually. And, and and hopefully, you know, there are solutions out there globally that we can learn from other places. And, you know, as we did in terms of creating the peace process, I mean, certainly whenever I was involved in practical day-to-day uh, discussions and debates with uh, paramilitary leaders in my local community to try and get them to to decommission to disarm, you know, to, to go through that DDR process of disarmament, demobilization, reintegration. Uh, and uh, back back then, 20 years ago, you know, we were um, talking to them from a kind of comparative perspective, you know, and saying that this is what's happening in other places. And, you know, this is good. You know, it's good that you go out of business because you're, you're giving something back to the community. But unfortunately, what we saw was this very contradictory kind of um, – process where paramilitaries were saying, yep, absolutely, we, we need to go out of business. Our job is done. That's what the way they would say it. Um, you know, we were there to defend Ulster. Ulster doesn't need to defend it. The, the union is safe. This is a sort of language they were using. But then the community were like, going back to them and saying, well, we've got this antisocial problem. We've got an issue with, um, you know, some dispute between families. We've got this, we've got that. Um, and they were kind of, they, you know, they were reluctant and deprived areas to kind of give it up. So so I suppose in a way, you, you know, it's not about apportioning blame. It's about uh, it's about seeing this as a very complex problem, and uh, you know, and, and trying to spread a little bit of kind of um, you know confidence, happiness, you know, positive kind of um, vibes to, to 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 basically to say to people there are alternatives, you know, and um, you know you shouldn't be going to um, you know these paramilitary organisations or malign influence. You know, they're having real um, bad effects on you and your community, on the morale of your community, you know, and, um, you know, and by giving people alternatives, unfortunately, the alternatives have to exist in order for the groups to, to you know, to become irrelevant. And unfortunately, um, we are in a very uh, serious situation at the moment where these groups have had new life breathed into them. Um, through the you know kind of geopolitical context and and the issue around um, Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol and uh, as I've been saying since last year they up until um, the situation the temperature rose uh, on on the the issues around. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, they didn't have a role um, in a political sense. Now they feel they do, and uh, now we we see them returning to, uh, you know, an old raison d'etre, which is about defence. And it's, I think it's a very serious and dangerous situation that we're entering with these groups. I mean, twelve thousand five hundred. Uh, members and loyalist paramilitary groups. That's, that's an estimate. Um, that, of course. Uh, uh, you, you know, we we we've heard um, in media reporting. Uh, I mean, what do they do? Uh, I, you, you know, um, uh, as one former senior 
UVF Brigade staff member I interviewed uh, some years ago said to me, uh, the devil makes work for idle hands. And I think that we're seeing that uh, at the at the moment in this devil of an issue. And uh, as I've said, it's we're reaching a tipping point uh, and uh, a very serious one at that. You suspect a Brexit may soon begin to cause security issues as it will inject new life into these groups. Just explain your fears. So I think that... Um, Loyalist groups, uh, so what happened last year, we saw spontaneous kind of leaderless violence uh, in deprived loyalist areas or in the edges of them. And uh, by and large, that was mainly uh, young people who were reacting to the announcement of um, no no prosecutions in relation to the Bobby Story funeral. It's kind of a trigger in some respects for those young people, but also they were um, engaging in anti-social behaviour anyway. Some of them um, believed that um, they were losing out uh, in the peace process. There was a whole range of factors that went into producing that violence. But what we saw in the, in, in the aftermath of that was an attempt by mainstream loyalist paramilitary groups to mop up that disaffection. And uh, it was quite evident that that was going to happen because those groups at that time were supportive of the peace process. And so they did, and they tried to channel it in a more peaceful direction. They failed, and they failed because, like the flags protests 10 years ago, the people had become radicalized around the issue. And with radicalization and extremism, it isn't really that much of a hop, skip, and jump to terrorism. And so what, what we've seen in that past year is that move towards uh, more extreme uh, activity, uh, radicalization around the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And, um, you know, it's it's my view, looking at the, uh, the security situation, that loyalist paramilitary groups have now had their hands forced by those in the grassroots, those further down, uh, in the community, you know, they don't sit in these ennobled positions. And so what I think we've seen is a their hand being forced. And uh, I do believe that both UV, the UVF and the UDA, elements of, of both organizations have become so restive that they probably have uh, moved in the space where they're considering uh, ramping up um, and increasing tensions. And, uh, you know, we've already seen that in terms of the bomb hoax, um, several bomb hoaxes uh, and, uh, and, and associated activity. So I think that my impression, not just of, of the UVF, but also of the UDA, is that they are, um, they are moving towards a tipping point. Um, and as I say, it's a very serious situation. How might this manifest itself further? You've suggested in Europe, co-author report that US firms, for example, may start taking a deep interest in loyalist paramilitaries should they decide to threaten American firms based in Dublin. Do you think that it is possible that we will see events like this in the years ahead? Well, the last time uh, I spoke on, on the podcast, I suggested that loyalists might follow a traditional kind of path of perhaps engaging in um, shootings or bomb hoaxes. Um, so they've engaged in one, not the other. Um, I think 
from a sort of strategic point of view, analyzing terrorism around the world, terrorist groups tend to go for one or two targets. They go for high value targets, so they go for soft targets. I don't think we're going to see a repeat um, of this soft target campaign. What I mean is ordinary people being shot or, 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 or murdered, uh, knife, you know, stabbed, killed. Um, I think that loyalist groups, some of them are thinking strategically about high-value targets. Where do they direct their energy, their hate, and their extremism? And repeatedly, I've heard um, that Dublin, uh, you know, Ireland is the blame. So I think that, as I've said, strategically, they are not they are not um they are learning from the mis- the sort of they they believe they are learning from the errors of the past uh, and how their campaigns played out and the leverage that that uh, and they've looked at campaigns mounted by the provisional ira and so on and they've looked at kind of strategic results so we've got we've got a dangerous situation where we've got um some paramilitaries thinking strategically and you know uh, and they're thinking about how they could hurt the irish economy for example uh, and that is, you know, as I've said, um, that must be preoccupying um, the security services sort of south of, you know, uh, Uri, uh and, you know, in the Republic. And I, I, I just wonder if the, the, you know, Ireland's kind of space, the place that it now occupies as a Silicon Valley of Europe is something that they would be actively thinking about targeting. And, um, you know, they are t- terrorists do this. They do think about targets. And, uh, you know, and so it, it is a worrying uh, time. And I think that potentially that could be where they they they, um, they go to next. Um, alternatively, you know, they might, they might turn in a more public order uh, direction, you know, and we've seen violence repeatedly across Belfast and other areas um, over the years, and so that might very well be the, um, you know, what we see develop next. Again, it's it's difficult. I mean, I'm speculating, but I'm also basing it on um, that kind of concept of a tipping point. And I do think that these paramilitary groups are restive enough; they're extreme enough now. They have turned against the peace process, uh, and uh, and they see themselves as being shunted into a, a no-win situation where they're pushed from the union that they that they hold so dear. So I think with extremists and terrorists, it's anyone's guess what they do next. Um, only the sort of law enforcement agency, security services can can give you kind of definite, on, you know, appreciation of that. But going by the previous history, I would say that it's it's worth it's worth looking at where loyalists were in the 1990s, for example. So we are seeing, um, uh, you know, some of that thinking coming to the fore now about what they do next beyond simple um, protest action and rallies. I think you're completely right because some of their spokespersons have made references to attacks south of the border in sort of very veiled threats or not not explicit threats, but they're threats nonetheless. Um, and I couldn't see some of these groups getting involved in sectarianism again. I couldn't see them getting involved in attacking nationalists or Republican 
communities. Although it's very much conceivable that they will start engaging in sort of civil disorder across Northern Ireland if they feel that benefits them better. It's a very difficult one to call. Uh, yes, it is difficult, um, but they. I think that uh, loyalist paramilitary groups and elements within those groups feel that they have been um, almost pushed into a corner. Um, that uh, you know, either they they escalate, as I've suggested before, uh, you know, on on this podcast, um, or they de-escalate and go home. Uh, and uh, I, I just don't see because of that younger element that radicalized element now pushing uh and biting at the heels i think it was described to me uh uh, you know the older members who uh by and large in terms of the dynamic within terrorism recruited them into the groups in the first place and the recruitment has been going on um even though there have been good attempts to try and stop that and uh this has been building for years northern Ireland protocol is just the latest issue. I think overall, my assessment would be that loyalist paramilitary groups and unionism generally is politically anxious. And if it's not this, it'll be something else. And But I think that um, that political anxiety doesn't always manifest itself in the kind of extremism that I'm describing today, um, or indeed in terrorism. That's actually using violence or the threat of violence for political purposes. But we are seeing the, that moment. Um, you know, this is uh, this space within which these groups are now operating. As I've said, they've turned their backs on the peace process, and it's, it's very worrying times. And does the concept of a border poll contribute to this sense of unease and the likelihood of problems down the road? Do you think? Absolutely, I'd say that uh, it you know the prospect of a border poll, um, uh, the um, you know obviously a, a Sinn Féin first minister in waiting, um, yeah, uh, you know at a political level, absolutely they they would be sort of fermenting that. We've seen some of the language used by senior Orange Order figures around, um, you, you know, they feel that they're being pushed into a united Ireland. And, um, you know, and, and the, the old rhetoric, the hearty annual of no surrenders coming out again. Um, as Alex Keane um, has described it recently, it's tinderbox, you know, and I think that's a really good way to describe the, the security situation with respect to loyalist paramilitaries at the minute, tinderbox. Aaron, finally, do you think the British government or indeed the Irish government fully understand what's happening there at the moment? Well, I, I think that they have uh, huge resources at their disposal in order to understand the complexity of the security situation. So, uh, I mean, as an academic working on this, uh, you know, as an independent uh, academic, as someone who um, has assessed this from a number of angles over the years, um, I, I'd say that um, we could certainly, you know, always know more. Um, but really, I don't think anyone has a full picture. I'm giving you a very ground level worm's eye view. Uh, and uh, of course, that's very easy to dismiss, but at the same time, it's that current of uh, extremism, of radicalization that is making these things 
much more of a security problem than they were. So I think a better understanding of the dynamism within that security environment is necessary. And I think that one one of the uh, the aims of the report, uh, the written evidence that we submitted to uh, UK Parliament was on the basis of, look, you know, we've charted this for 20, in some cases, 30 years. We've looked at it very closely. Um, we, we think we know what works, what doesn't. Um, this is our analysis, you know, take it or leave it. So really, um, it's about trying to increase analytical um, capability awareness um, within policy circles. Uh, but at the same time, that, that's all really we can do. And there are people who are much more positive in their outlook and saying things are getting better. But quite honestly, there's an avalanche of empirical evidence to the contrary now. Uh, but this has been a problem building for some time. And um, yeah, and, and so we're, we're taking a very long view. And I should add that um, we're offering kind of some recommendations. Uh, we know that there are problems. We know that there are structural problems. I mean, like deprivation, you know, marginalization, the lack of life choices, the, you know, long-term unemployment. These things are there. And when they fuse with, you know, this sort of more radical take on, um, you know, the end of the union, endism or uh, United Irelandism, it's making people incredibly anxious and it's feeding these problems. So I think that one way of tackling that might be to try as far as possible to dial down the rhetoric, you know, publicly, I think, um, from different political elements locally in Northern Ireland, um, and to, you know, to try and appoint some kind of task force to go into these areas to, to really take away the crutches that extremism and terrorism depend upon to, to, to make progress in those communities, um, to suggest things like a community wealth building Pro program it doesn't have paramilitaries as gatekeepers you know has ordinary people who work in self-help groups which still exist in very deprived and marginalized areas to to looking at things like um you know youth training and education social care services mental health and addiction support services you know social entrepreneurship you know all these kind of positive things that we could do um to drive a kind of bottom-up agenda. So I think that the top-down agenda um, that has been running for many years needs to meet that bottom-up agenda for it to have long-term success. So that's what we're trying to to push forward. To make that more palatable and easier to understand within the loyalist community, I think that the next phase um, must be people like me talking about British values uh, and what does it actually mean to be uh, British. So, uh, I, you know, and what I mean by that is there is a solid tradition of involvement in community groups, that's non-paramilitary aligned ones, uh, trade unionism, you know, some sort of cooperative kind of um, sense of driving forward the kinds of things that in England, Scotland, Wales bring community cohesion um, but for whatever reason, haven't been applied in Northern Ireland. And I think by giving people uh, choices, by giving people a some kind of vision for the future, some kind of hope, um, if they really want to integrate themselves more closely with Great Britain and, and secure the union for the future, I think that you know we need to spell out exactly what uh, those values are. And um, belonging to paramilitary groups and supporting paramilitary groups is completely anathema to that.
You have been listening to Dr. Aaron Edwards. I'd like to thank Aaron for joining us today to discuss this issue. For anyone interested in this subject, could I recommend some of Aaron's books, including UVF Behind the Mask and Agents of Influence. Aaron, thank you for joining me today. And thank you too, listener. Do join us again soon for another edition of The Dark State.